Welcome to episode 45, live from my drum room. My guest today is Michael Shreve, um, best known for his unbelievably incredible performance at Woodstock because it's documented in the movie, but really his groundbreaking work, work with Carlos Santana, uh, where he joined the band at age 19, I believe. And, and you know, that drum solo, he just turned 20 years old, it, it, you know, he performed at Woodstock. So just an amazing story and uh, an amazing musician. And a guy, you know, that, that I've known, we've known each other for about 35 years and, and we see each other from time to time. And, and uh, I'm really glad that we've reconnected. And this is, a, you know, a, another step in us staying in better contact. So thanks to all you guys for tuning in today to watch this. Um, I appreciate it. I know Michael appreciates it. And thank you, Anthony. I'm glad everything looks and sounds great. Uh, quite different background in the drum room. Yes, Penny, a little bit different. It's good to see you, Penny. And my friend Steve Ford is taking care of the drum room, so that's good. Okay, without further ado, this is what happens. I go into this other zone of nonsense, and I waste valuable time. So please welcome yes, my very special guest, the great Michael Shreve. And there he is. Hey there. Hey. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you today, buddy? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. How is how is you mentioned earlier? It's the the weather there. It's not super hot anymore. You, that's that heat wave has oh, subsided. Apparently, that was um, an extremely unusual event. Um, and in fact, later they called it like something something like um, like a mass human event, like like a hundred people died or something like that. Oh, and um, the numbers just kept coming in that more, more and more probably old folks like yeah. me um, were dying or in homes that maybe the places that would, didn't have AC and things like that. So uh, it was very unusual. Um, and we're not used to it. A lot of people out here still don't have air conditioners, man. You know, right. and that's, that's that's deadly when there's a heat like that. So, but you know, it's happening everywhere. 130 in in the desert, 114 in Vegas. You know, it's uh, they're used to it there. But um, but yeah, wow. it's everywhere. My daughter lives in Eugene, Oregon, and um, getting a lot of the same weather. And she, and she was, you know, she said it's just been unbelievable, just unbelievable. And the fact that it's so unusual as well, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not prepared for it. Like you said, she lives with a boyfriend in a house that has, uh, by the way, everybody who's watching, I should have said Michael's coming to us from Seattle. So uh, he's, you know, he's been in the midst of this, in the thick of this incredible heat wave that they had out there. And, um, and as I said, my daughter's in the same, you know, climate zone, so to speak, Um yeah, and she grew up in Boston, and it, you know, it's not a stranger to hot weather. But she said it's it's just been brutal, just incredibly brutal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Boston has that that humidity as well when it gets really hot, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's right now as we speak. It's it's about gosh, it's here on the vineyard. It's it's not even seventy degrees. It's sixty something, high sixties, but really high humidity. I went out this morning for a run and. You know, it's just, it's, it, 
it wasn't really hot, but it was just clammy, you know, that just that ugh, clammy feeling. It does, you know, wreaks havoc on my hair. So, <laughs> by the way, I cut all my hair off after that in the middle of that heat thing. I just said, you know, screw it, take it off, take it off. It'll grow back. That's right. It'll grow back. And it looks great. It looks fine. Uh, by the way, Stanley Sheldon says hello to you and to me, the great wow. Stanley Sheldon. Stanley Sheldon. Hi, Stanley Sheldon. Wow. Yeah. That, that goes back a while. A I lot know. of people I, that I, I knew on the East Coast um, when I was living in New York City, I don't get a chance to see that often. But, but Facebook's allowed you, you know, allowed us all to reconnect with, I mean, old people, old friends from high school that you haven't seen. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. But um, but for the most part, it's it's been uh, it's been really nice reconnecting with people. Yeah, yeah. I would say the same thing. I know it's it's if you if you take out a lot of the other stuff that comes with it, and you just look at it uh, as a as a means to you know connect with old friends and yeah. um, you know and like promote a gig that you might be doing at a local club or something and those yeah. kinds of things. It's it's good. So it's all good if, as long as you don't bring up politics. <laughs> exactly. And then exactly. all hell breaks loose. Then it's like, I know. Then it's like the Wild West, man. You know, just anything political. Sometimes, you know, I know I say, well, I know, but I feel really strongly. I'm going to put this out. And it's like, damn, you know, <laughs> like here's the real America. You know, it's uh. like this is where we're at. You know, oh, that's that, funny. Yeah. I was I was thinking the last time I saw you in person was 2016, five years ago. Does that sound right? When you were on tour yeah, with Carlos? Came with, uh, came with Danny Seraphine. Yeah. And that's uh, right. that was really great. I just saw pictures of that recently. And so, um, and so, and I watched uh, some of your episode with Danny as well. So I thought, you know, oh yeah, those guys came. That was nice. Yeah. That was a yeah, that was a that was a fun night. It was it was I was glad we had as much time to hang out that we that we had too. And and you were yeah. very accommodating. I remember um in fact I think when we got there, um we couldn't find Steve Smith had arranged the tickets because right. it was it was you guys, it was Santana and Journey. Yeah. And Steve was doing a meet and greet or something, and I, I texted you and you immediately said, I'll meet you at the you know, at the gate or at the door or something, and you brought Danny and I back, and yeah, yeah it was, that was a, a great. And you, you played oh, beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I wish that tour could have uh, extended throughout the summer, but alas, that was the last one. So, uh, which was kind of a shock to uh, all of us, uh, to tell you the truth. But it was really great to see you and Danny. God, who else did we see that night? There's a woman, um, and I'm forgetting her name, that, you know, she used to be a clothing designer in the East Village back in the oh. day. All that stuff you see Miles wearing and Jimi Hendrix, she made all that stuff. No kidding. Yeah, and she started all this thing, and she was good friends with Betty Davis and, um, and Devin, Jimi Hendrix's uh, girlfriend. Anyway, that was the scene, you know? It was just like these beautiful women making these beautiful clothes and these monster musicians wearing them. And she was there that night and I hadn't seen her for 
many moons, you know. Yeah. Sorry, forgetting her name, but um, yeah. I I remember I remember sitting in the in the um, the green room after your show, and uh, and we were having a glass of wine, and you introduced me to Michael Carabello, and yeah, um, and and it was great to meet him, and it was definitely a hang. I mean, there were like a lot of cool folks there, and it 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 re, it kind of felt like almost probably what it I shouldn't say what it would have been like to be there in the '60s, but there was definitely a vibe of like a lot of no, like people of, of notoriety coming out to see you guys from New York. There were just, uh, you know, Michael, I think Michael had a group of friends there from Connecticut or New York that he introduced yeah. me to. And yeah. 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 It was, I, and I was just going to say, Michael, I, I, as I was thinking about us doing this today, I was thinking about your lineage of like how you mentioned Hendrix and, and, you know, like you, you knew all those cats, you hung with all those guys. That's just, it, well, it must've been incredible. The truth is I never met Jimmy and um, everybody else did. I think they went to the studio one time, like on eighth um, at Jimmy's studio, um, electric Ladyland, of course. And, um, yeah. but I never met the guy. I always wanted to, uh, but I found out later one of his producers um, told me that he wanted to have a band with me playing drums. And, um, you know, I was like, dude, you should have called, you know, <laughs> should have called me. I would have loved that. Um, and apparently Jimmy uh, mentioned to Carlos at that famous uh, Jimmy plays Berkeley show that he wanted to actually join Santana. <laughs> uh, he liked the rhythm section and he you know um wow. that was the thing so but i never met him but i think sometimes it's it's just as well there's a few people you don't meet so that they can always be there in mythological terms with you you know yeah yeah like that sometimes you meet your heroes and it's disappointing <laughs> well yeah we we know about that and yeah, I don't know why. I just I assumed, you know, based on on the fact that you guys traveled in the same circles, so to speak, yeah. you know, that that you yeah. have um you you must have had you met did you meet Mitch Mitchell? You must have known Mitch. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew Mitch, you know, pretty much like to the day he died, you know. I mean, we yeah. we weren't in touch all the time, but um but when he was in town, I go see him. I asked him to come I used to play a, a, a weekly gig here in, in, in Seattle for, you know, like seven years. I played weekly. And guys, when they're in town, they would come down, Vinny and all, all these people. And I asked him to come down, but he didn't come down. I know he was thinking I was going to ask him to sit in. Um, and he didn't want to do that. And I understand yeah. that. But I I would have honored that, you know, just so he sure. could come and hang out, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I always thought, I always related to Mitch and his playing because of his Elvin influence, you know? Yeah, yep. And I think if it wasn't for Elvin Jones, just think how much different Jimi Hendrix's band would have sounded. That's a great way of, of looking at it. You're right. You're it's absolutely really, right. It's really true. I mean, you know, all that triplet stuff, you know, um, I forget the tune. Um, 
Oh, uh, manic depression. Yeah, manic depression, and that yeah. stuff. You know, that's that's really a, a you know a, a rock version of Jimmy's. I mean, uh, Elvin's feel. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and I always felt like that with Jack DeJohnette when he played with Miles, and they were doing the backbeat stuff. You know, with with Chick and Ayrto and, and Michael Henderson and stuff, and Dave Holland. But I always thought, man, the way that he's playing a backbeat is not like the R&B drummers, but I really loved it. It was yeah. like, uh, you know, that little 16, 18-inch bass drum. It's, you could <laughs> like go anywhere. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You you already have a couple of questions. Uh, if I can run these by you, Michael. My friend sure. uh, Anthony Cuscina, Cuscina, who is a regular on these shows, which I really appreciate. Uh, wanted to ask you if you could talk a, a little bit about how the stick people got started and okay. how you got the, and how you got the gig with Carlos. Okay. Uh, stick people. Let's start with that. Hello, Anthony. Sure. Um, well, these were, these were stick people is uh, David Garibaldi, Mike Clark, Lenny White, Greg Rico, and myself. Mm -hmm. So, Everybody's from the Bay Area, except for Lenny. He's from New York. But Lenny spent a lot of time in the Bay Area during that period when all our bands were, were coming up and growing. Greg was Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, Mike Clark with Herbie Hancock and uh, the other funk stuff. David, of course, with Tower of Power. And myself with Santana. So Lenny was out there frequently... He played in a band with um, Coke Escovito and Pete Escovito. And they had all the great players in San Francisco. And Lenny was completely into it. And he just loved being in San Francisco in this scene that was going on there. And we became really close friends. You can see this, see this picture in the background there to the right? Yes, yeah. That's me and Lenny, like when we're like 18 or something. Probably 20. But uh, Jim Marshall took that, the great photographer and um so Lenny and I have always been really really like brothers um because we shared a love for the jazz stuff but we were totally into all the other stuff that was going on like the R&B and rock stuff and um the scene was exciting okay how do stick people get together so um so we were talking when the epidemic happened. We were talking, um, we were doing Zoom since April of 2020, and we were doing it. Um, and I was recording it every one of them. And really, we did it three times a week for almost a year, just, wow. just us. And we it got to the point, John and Anthony, where we just couldn't wait to get back on with each other. You know, it was like a, it was like a men's club, you know, <laughs> and so we talk about, you know, anything and, um, you know, health issues, of course. And how are you dealing with this? Like a bunch of old men. Right. And um, <laughs> and and then we started having some guests and it was very unorganized. And we were. um down the road, we started to talk. People were people were approaching us, like film people and that kind of thing, to see let's do something. And 
nothing really ever happened. But David Garibaldi knew a fellow named Mike, Mike Charlash. And Mike is a promoter type of guy. But he took over producing the thing and made sense of it and got an editor and made it like professional. Mm-hmm. So ever since then, I mean, we've got a whole bunch of people that are still in the can. Um, and some that we have to redo because we got better at it later, you know? Yeah. Now yeah. It is. So, I mean, Mike made sure we all got like lights and camera and action and stuff like that on a minimal level, but um, at least to look, make it look a little professional. So, I mean, so we have Billy Cobham that just came out. We've got Antonio Sanchez, Mark Giuliano, Peter Erskine, Stanley Clark. Uh, I know I'm forgetting somebody. Um, so Billy just came out and that was really a great one. And everybody's been really, it's like, it's like a brotherhood, you know, you know this. If anybody would know, you know. And um, so now we do the interviews, but we really try to be prepared uh, and have good good questions and at the same time leave room. It's kind of like music, you know. Um, And we have John Schofield coming up. And we um, we have like a really good one with Steve Jordan, but the lighting is terrible. So maybe we can redo that. We got a a good one with Charlie Hunter that the lighting's not good. Larry Graham uh, we had on, and then we had technical problems, but he'll be coming up too. And so it's just started as a bunch of guys talking three times a week on Zoom. And then we decided, uh, which some of those conversations are worth editing and putting out a lot of life stuff, a lot of, a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. Um, but everybody was like, and it's right at dinner time too. So everybody's, everybody, uh, it's important to everybody. And we've been off for a while while David Garibaldi and Gregorico have been in Italy. Um, and we'll start back up again soon. But we've got stuff in the can that needs to be edited. In. And so that's how that started. And we don't know where it's going to go. Um, but ever since uh, Mike, came on Mike Charlotte came on it's really up the game and and now we feel really comfortable and we're really proud of looking at it and you know so we're also learning like we're getting lessons from him in Instagram and Facebook and you know <laughs> you know like we all, we all post stuff but now it's like oh there's a whole nother level to this thing if you want you know yeah so so that Six people, and then um, how did I get <laughs> Carlos going to take up the whole show? <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, I used to go to Fillmore West all the time. I would drive up in my father's car from uh, Redwood City, where I lived, and go see every. That was the mecca, you know. I'd go see Charles Lloyd, and I'd go see BB King, and I'd see. I mean, I saw Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, I think, um, together with the Yardbirds, I think, you know. And I saw Cream there and everybody. So it was the Mecca. And I saw that um, Michael Bloomfield was playing. But Michael Bloomfield was like the American Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. And he played on all early Dylan stuff when he went electric. 
but he played in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and they put out some records like East West that, to me, kind of defined the sound of the Fillmore. You know, if I hear that song, that modal jamming on there, I, I can smell the incense. I can smell the pot. I can see the apples that Bill Graham put out for the people. Um, and I can see the pretty hippie chicks dancing, moving and stuff. <laughs> it all comes back, you know, like a flood of, uh, of uh, emotion as well. So Michael Bloomfield was playing a thing called the Super Session with uh, Al Cooper and Stephen Stills. Yes. Yep. I called up my friends and I said, let's go see if we can sit in. Literally. And nobody said, oh, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Actually, there's one person that did. Then he said, hold on one second. He talked to his girlfriend. And then he said, I think I'm going to stay in tonight. And at that moment, I realized that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> the guy wanted to go, right? Anyway. Yeah. And you were so, about 18 or 19? You were 19 at the time? Really. Or I was probably 1819 yeah 1819 okay yeah. yeah so so I borrowed my father's car I went up there went into the Fillmore went straight up to the stage because I was scared to death so I went straight up to Bloomfield and I pulled on his pants <laughs> and I said hey I'm a drummer do you think I could sit in you know I'm just waiting for him to kick me in the face or just say <laughs> get out of here you know you know <laughs> Either, either one would have been appropriate. And so he said, instead, he said, man, the drummer's a really nice guy. Let me go ask him. And now I'm like, oh, man, I didn't plan <laughs> on that, you know. <laughs> so um, next thing I know, I'm on the stage. And um, I'm so traumatized that... Um, Later, I don't remember a, a note I played. Truly. <laughs> like a dream. And so then I went backstage, backstage at the Fillmore now. It's like, you know. Yeah. And, and the manager and the bass player for Santana were there. And they said, hey. And I, I was a fan of Santana. Um, and they said, we're with a band called Santana. And we're thinking of changing drummers. Can we get your number? And so... Um, I gave my number, but I never really heard from them. I went to see them again, cut bass. Um, and then I went to a recording studio where I was always hustling time for my own groups. And as I'm walking in, John, literally, and I, I've told this story a million times, but it's quite a story. As I'm walking in through the door, the drummer in Santana is walking out. Now, I didn't know they were going to be there or anything. I was down there hustling. And they were recording their first album. Wow. And um, they had a falling, big falling out with the drummer. Now, the guys that saw me at Fillmore remembered me and, and invited me to jam in the studio. And um, by Excuse the end of the... Second. Yeah. Alexa, stop. Sorry, my wife set an alarm. <laughs> Alexa. <laughs> um, so, where was I? Um, so, 
they asked me to play and I played. And at the end of that, I think it was quite a while. We went through a lot of stuff. They took me in a side room and they literally asked me, do you want to join the band right then and there? Wow. And I said, you know, let me check my schedule. (laughs) Uh, This is the story I told at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. uh, (laughs) So here's what happened. They literally followed me home to my parents' house. I woke up my parents and I said, okay, this is where I get off. I'm going to go up to the city now. And uh, I joined this band. And um, they were like, okay, see you later. And uh, I went up to the city with them in the Mission District, and I slept on the couch, you know, for a long time. And then I was in the band. Wow. Which is, you know, at at 19 years old, I mean, you sleep on the couch, it doesn't matter, you you know. Really, I was sleeping on couches anyway, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a really great experience for me prior to that whole experience, like a year earlier, even, or six months, I was perhaps going to play with Jefferson airplane. Okay. They were, they were huge. You know, they were like, damn the grateful dead. They were like the hippie Mecca. And, um, I got to know them somehow. I go over their house. They were, had a mansion on Fulton Street, like a Georgian mansion, like the hippies like broke through. And I even flew with Jack Cassidy and Yorma to L.A. Like they invited me to come to L.A. while they're recording uh, a Bathing at Baxter's this record. Mm-hmm. So here I am, this like 19-year-old kid or whatever I am. We're staying at the Tropicana Hotel. I'm probably on a couch again. And, um, you know, Jim Morrison drops by, says hello to Yorma. Eric Clapton comes by with a cassette of a group that he's super excited about called The Band. Wow. And uh, it was before the record came out. I go to the studio that night, and David Crosby comes down and and brings them a song called Triads and teaches it to them. And uh, they recorded it on the album. and. and I realized now the engineer was uh, Al Schmidt. Oh, you know, man. Just fast, you know? Yeah, legendary. Yeah. And so I felt like, you know, I felt like, uh, um, what's the guy's name? Tom Hanks played. Oh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, I felt like Forrest Gump, you know? Yeah. Here I am, this kid, and I'm flying a plane with these guys, and, and Jim Morrison comes by, and Eric, Gla- you know, I'm like, <sighs> you know. So, long story short about that, I never ended up joining Jefferson Airplane. And um, I think that that was like a real uh, divine intervention there because Santana was really great for me to be in. And um, and I can play that music better than I could play the Jefferson Airplane music, I, I think. And um, so... That's how it was. When when I got in the band, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really a Latin player. I studied out of a Ted Reed book, um, Latin, and, you know, got some basics. But every time I played with Santana and they did the Latin thing, I would always swing on the cymbal. 
I never played any Latin rhythms. Not yeah. really. They did. Uh, the, the percussionist, and then I'd swing it like a jazz drummer. And so I think that's part of the reason it made it like a little bit different. Like it wasn't like it wasn't like New York salsa, you know, something like yeah. that. So I th I think that you're right. I think that in in my little small amount of knowledge on the subject, but I think I think you're right. I think that there's definitely a swing in 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 what you play and um that sort of contrast, I guess, maybe to what the percussionists were playing. Yeah. Yeah, it's more I traditional mean, Latin. Even there, Carabello was not your regular traditional conga either. Mm -hmm. So, and um, Chapito on timbales and congas was from Nicaragua. So there was a little bit of different thing than like the Cuban or Puerto Rican sort of sort of thing. But I was really glad that it fit because I could play that, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and I you know I wouldn't sound like. Uh, I wouldn't sound like I didn't know what I was doing, you know. <laughs> well, far from it, man. I mean, I, I want to just skip back just a little bit before that. So you you probably, I'm guessing, started at a, playing at a, at a young age. I mean, if you were playing at the level you were playing at at 18, then I'm guessing you started pretty young, right? I started like in eighth grade. Wow. Okay. So about 13, age 13? Yeah. Sure, right. 13. And then I and then in high school I I um I I played in everything I could. I mean I was a big fan of the Rudiments. I played in the youth drum corps in my city. I played in the marching bands at school, and um, took a lot of crap from people um, just because you're in that band, you know, you know. Yeah. The football players and you're in the band. It's like the it's like the drama kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you had the last good. laugh, though, Michael. Oh, I certainly did. <laughs> and I remember some of those guys that were not too kind to me. I mean, not kind at all. Like thinking, you know, oh, what? I'm. Gonna, you think I'm stupid enough to get in a fight with you? You know, it's like yeah. Yeah. even the coach of, of that school made fun of me in front of like two classes. And I got suspended for what I said. He tried to make me lift these weights, you know, and he was the football coach and he didn't like me. And I had a piece, you know, I wore a peace sign and, you know, yeah. I was, uh, it's funny because I never thought of myself as a hippie later. I never did. I, I um, at any rate, so he, uh, he tried to make me lift these weights in, in front of everybody, knowing that I'm not going to be able to do it, you know? Mm. And so I just looked at him and I looked at people and i said you think i'm a fucking idiot you know you you think i'm gonna sit here and let you make fun of you know and i told him go fuck yourself it was a all catholic all boys school and so you know <laughs> yeah oops <laughs> so, so then my senior year i spent at another high school <laughs> <laughs> So, so that what that leads to is a couple of those guys, I got a message like uh, backstage, these two guys that used to like push my books and do all this, you know, and uh, they wanted to come in and say hello and look at it. And I said, never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good for you. <laughs> That's about as cool as I get, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, That's uh, great. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't long after that. I mean, it wasn't long after high school that you were, you know, at Woodstock. I mean, that just had to be. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, and so, and so your influences, we offline before we were live, you were talking about, and you, you mentioned Elvin, of course, in terms of like his, his influence on Mitch Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix. And, and I know Elvin was a big influence on you. And was it, was it mostly jazz drummers that influenced yeah. you in those years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, Elvin came later because he, he was so complex, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I came up with the big band stuff, Gene Krupa, um, you know, drum and man, drum and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I yeah. played it in my, in my bedroom, but I didn't even have a drum set. I mean, I had a paper route and I bought a, a two Japanese snares and, a, and I had a cymbal from somewhere. I mean, the, the drum kit that I played at Woodstock was the first drum kit I ever owned. And I bought that while I was on the road right after high school. You know, I never even had a, I never even had my own drum set all through high school. No kidding. I, that, that, yeah. I, 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 was, I had I, no, yeah. I was borrowing, I was doing this, I was doing, you know. Wow. Well, you, yeah. you were, you were put on this earth to play the drums because how do you not have a drum set, you know, and, and be that good. And then a year after getting a drum set, play in front of, <laughs> <laughs> the you yeah. know the biggest concert you know yeah yeah wow i mean i so i i i love the jazz guys and i you know of course i was playing in big band in junior college and that really turned me around hmm. um that was an experience that was so critical that you know just like big band drummers and like how to set up the hits and all that but it was also during that period where i learned what the hippest stuff what was going on was in the small groups like Miles Davis, you know, with Tony. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Art Blakey, and he had, you know, Wayne Short or two before, you know, everybody. Um, all those small groups were really happening. And then I started playing at a place in Palo Alto where I was playing jazz, like an organ group. And, um, and then I would play on the other side of the highway in an all black club in the house band. So, I back up people like BB King and Etta James, and you know people who didn't have a band. Mm -hmm. And I was the only white person in the club, I swear. And, um, and plus, I looked like I was ten years old, so it was, <laughs> you know, girls would come like, "Can I touch your hair?" You know? <laughs> but so I was playing a lot of R&B, and um, and I, you know, I appreciated the Beatles and the Stones and. I'm I'm a big fan of all the British pop music. I'm a yeah. sucker for it, you know. Um, I, like the Hollies, I just love the Hollies and the Zombies and uh, and Dino Donnelly with the Young Rascals, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I I I was taking everything in, um, and I wasn't too much of a snob, you know. I I wouldn't think I wouldn't have thought so. You know, you you you. I mean, I, I knew you old, you know, after all that, I, we met about 30 something years ago and, and, but you strike me as someone that, that had an open mind to all that music. You weren't, you know, you weren't a, a jazzer who was just going to dismiss. 
you know, the, the rock yeah. and roll guys. And, and you, you answered a question I had. I wondered if maybe, um, and, and I, I'm guessing that when the Beatles came along in like 64, you were, you weren't as influenced by them as say some of these other, you, you you're kind of, you were in a different place, but you. Yeah. But I, but yeah. I tell you what, I mean, I would learn those beats, you know, I would learn ticket to ride and I would, you know, um, you know, but you know, for me, it was Ringo. It was the sound too, right? Yeah, yeah, sound. absolutely, yeah. I have open, and 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 I was very aware, even young, that what the drummer is doing is creating a, an extra level of excitement in the frequency, you know, because of that open hi hat. Yeah. Yeah. And that made it just like excited everything. And so it made it really, uh, it gave it a, uh, what's the word, um, urgency, you know? Yeah. Like, which is what you want when you're young. It's like it made the music urgent and, yeah, good. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, I love the Stones too. Um, I took great delight in learning, you know, like satisfaction and that kind of thing. And then, and then figuring out later in time, like other records that had that beat, you know. I mean, the groove that I play on Black Magic Woman, I learned from a B.B. King record that I bought for 59 cents. And it was called B.B. Plays the Mambo or something like that. And um, it had it had dance steps on the back cover. And uh, and so I learned stuff like that. and And... I learned uh, that, you know, that's a, a blues groove, you know, really. It's like a, you know, no, it was BB plays the cha cha. Wow. But, yeah. <laughs> and, then, um, and then wow. I fell in love with like um, Charles Lloyd with, uh, with Keith and, and, um, and uh, Jack D. Jeanette and um, Dave Holland on bass. Was that who it was? So Probably, yeah, that yeah. Fourth flower period. I was um, somehow I got really turned around by these these group like players like Jack and Tony, um, and then you know there were rock drummers too and R and B drummers that you know every time James Brown came out with the record I was all over it. I, yeah. I mean I, that was like a feather in my hat, you know. That's like. Um, I would go down to clubs and play that stuff. As soon as it came <laughs> out, you know, it's like yeah. my, like, it's like, okay, I got this, you know, here's this like 15 year old looking dude, white dude coming in. So, <laughs> so a lot of the brothers, like, the, they liked me, you know? Yeah. They liked me. And uh, same for at school, too. So um, you could play that shit and, uh, and they, you know, you they, had the respect. Yeah. And they got your back, you know. So these yeah. uh, these uh, football players. I I told my son Sam that when he was going to school too. He's playing drums. I said, "You learn this James Brown stuff or this funky thing, you're gonna have respect with all the brothers in in the school, just like that." Yeah. And he did it, and it was true, you know. So. <laughs> and the chicks will dig him too. Chicks will dig you too. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you know just to jump ahead so you 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 get the gig with carlos you record that that first record with him 
Um, yeah. And that's that's before Woodstock, right? That was leading up to that summer. Uh, that record didn't even come out before Woodstock. So when right. we played Woodstock, and I didn't realize this until five or ten years ago, you know, I forgot that we played Woodstock without an album out. So not, most of the groups, people were familiar with the music. Yeah, yeah. So Santana, they had never heard it before. And so it's even more special, I think, that we won them over without them being familiar with the music. Yeah, I I didn't realize that. I think I read that recently, but had I had I assumed there was at least a record a record or two out by then. No. Wow. Yeah. And so, and, uh, and Soul Sacrifice wasn't on the first record, right? Or or it was, uh, but it was a very was. top version. Um, you know, it was, it was nothing special except it was the tune. Um and so it just became a thing with that that song is the drum solo song. Um, it was improvised most every night. Um, I definitely like it was space for me to, to use all you know my rudiments, you know, my hand stuff. Like when you say, "Wow, you didn't have a drum set in high school," but I had snare drums, you know. So I I would go through the Buddy Rich books and the rudiments, and I had I had really good teachers like. Um, Anthony Cerrone at one point, and oh, yeah. Pete Magadini, and um, Michael Carvin. They were all really important in my life. So, um, so yeah, Soul Sacrifice was just improvised. When people tell me I learned it, you know, I'm like, you know, you should have learned the one from Tanglewood. <laughs> I've heard you, I've heard, I think you've said that, you've told me that you, you like that solo better, that performance better. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't li I could never really listen to the Woodstock performance. I didn't care for it, but um, when I watch it, I get it because you know it's so the whole band is so vigorous, you know, and um, and the solo was really great to look at, you know, like it's better to look at with the sound than just hear it. I found. <laughs> So, well, that's that's you being the your own you know biggest critic. Yes, it is. Yeah, but when I listen, I go when I stop playing the groove and I'm going, "Good man, what are you doing?" I say that now. You know, <laughs> you got five hundred thousand people. Keep the groove going. Keep the <laughs> groove going. <laughs> no, I I I wouldn't change a thing with that no, drum no, solo. Neither would I. And so Woodstock became. Um, prevalent in all our lives um and it, it's been that kind of thing where it's a love-hate thing for me for many years i can tell us about 35 33 something i'm living in new york and um walking down fifth avenue and i'd see people and people would be like hey mike Shreve, you know and they go like wow you're getting older you know and i'm like <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah Wow, you too. And, um, and anyway, Woodstock, Woodstock, Woodstock was all everybody, anybody. I, I had bands, I had Automatic Man, I had Noble Combo, I was, I had done solo records, I'd done this and that, you know, and all I hear is about Woodstock. So I used to spend a lot of energy like saying, oh, have you heard my latest this? Have you heard this? Finally, I just said, you know what? Shut up. Just shut up. Just <laughs> shut up. 
and be <laughs> gracious and say, thank you very much. That's very kind of you, you know, and be grateful that you've done something that means so much to so many people and let it go. And then just live your life like you want to live it now. Make the music you want to make. Do anything you want. And then just be gracious about Woodstock instead of sick and tired of it. And so <laughs> that day I, I taught myself a lesson, you know. Yeah. Be grateful, you know. And also, That's... I always had this thing. is like when you grow older, promise yourself you'll never be a bitter old man. No matter what happens, you know. Just don't be that guy. Don't get bitter and this and that. Oh, I should have gone. I should have this. People should have, you know, it's like, no, let it go. Just enjoy it. Just do what you want to do. You know, you don't have to answer to anybody. Just, uh, you know, do what you want to do and don't complain, basically. That's great advice. No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, we we talked about this offline, I know, and um, it, it had to have been, you know, it, that had to have gotten old, you know, constantly people just sort of only fixating on that. But but like you say, I think as we get older, too, you know, you can look back at that now and be so proud of it. Um, it was such an important moment in time. It will be something that 100 years from now people will still be talking about. I, I firmly believe that. I think you do, too, that it's it's just such an important part of history. And and man, I mean, you know, if when when I see footage of that, I know you were you had just turned twenty, like you know, a month before. But you look about fourteen. That's, I know. that's the funny thing. You look, I mean, you, you know, you, you and you still have that baby face. And I, I saw the, the um, somewhat recently. I I was watching Gimme Shelter, and there's there's that clip um, where you and and Jerry Garcia are talking, and I think Phil Lesh maybe. Yeah, There's a, yeah, a quick yeah. clip of you guys. And so were you guys, and, and not to get off on that tangent, but were uh, you guys uh, scheduled to play that day? Was Santana supposed to be on the bill that day? We did play. You did play. Okay. Yeah, we did play. And I tell you, um, as great as Woodstock was, this was just the opposite. And yeah. it was literally frightening to be on the stage. First of all, it was so low. It was only about... Yeah. 12 inches up. And then the Hells Angels were all around the stage. And they were really intimidating. And they were, you know, really messed up. I know there was one guy that had that, like, coyote hat on or something and a beard. And I felt I felt for the first time in my life a, a, a force that I, I called evil. You know? Yeah. And I... I who goes there, you know, but I realized this is an energy. This is an energy, and this energy is really dark. And so as soon as we got done, I said, this is not going to go well. And um, I went over to the helicopter place, you know, and just stood there waiting. I didn't care what anybody else was going to do or anything. I didn't want to hear anything. And um, and I got out of there. And so when I was was on my way out, Jerry and Phil came and they couldn't believe that the Hell's Angels were, were doing stuff. If they, it was beyond there, like, and so, I mean, they beat the shit out of Marty Ballant, you know, and I told him about that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, anyway, so we, we yeah. declined to be in the movie. We, we 
when we were in London, we went to a a showing of it um, with Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger. And in, in retrospect, I wish we would have been in the film um, because just for historical value. Mm-hmm. But at the time, we didn't want to be associated with something so dark. And um, I regret that now. I, if, I'd love to see the footage and, uh, and hear it. We played well all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. We really, we didn't really, we, we rehearsed all the time. So the, the, I think of the bands in San Francisco that rehearsed more than others. It was Santana and Sly and the Family Stone. Greg said they rehearsed a lot. And so that's how you get good is by really, you know, rehearsing. I, I, I think people don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that footage must exist somewhere. I mean, it's, it, they did capture it, but you just opted to not have it in the movie. So. Yeah. So it's somewhere. It's I know it was somewhere. a Maisel brothers film and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be good to see it. It'd be great to see it. Yeah. Well, I, I guess on a positive note, that same year, you know, I mean, it was only Altamont was only a few months after Woodstock and yeah. you kind of, it, it, you know, you have such a great documented, um, you know, performance already. So you, I, but I know what you're saying. You, you, now looking at it 50 some odd years later, it would be, would be nice to see it, you know, just for yeah. historical purposes. Yeah. 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 Um, I was just going to say, Michael, a lot of people have asked, and yeah. and I remember seeing that your Ludwig kit um, was was up for auction a few years ago, and people are asking if you still have it um, or or where that is. I, I yeah. forget what ended up happening with it. Yeah. Um, I don't have it anymore. I held on to it for a long time. About four or five years ago, I put it up for auction, and the highest bidder was um, was the Musicians Hall of Fame museum in nashville tennessee mm. so um i gotta get down there sometime they've got a very nice they've got it set up really nice it's real respectful and um it looks great so that's where it is okay there you go that's great first drum to... i ever owned first drum set yeah Man. and i also lost them um I, I sold them to somebody because I was kind of a, uh, even though I wasn't a hippie, I was of this frame of mind, like, you know, the past is dust. And so, you know, don't hold on to things and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> so there's a few things I regret, like getting rid of. So I was out, I was living in New York city. I, I, I came out to visit my brother, Rich, who was working at bank of America downtown, um, um, San Francisco, and a colleague of his came up to me and said, "Hey, Mike, nice to see you. Uh, my brother still has those drums you sold him." And I said, "Because I was wondering, I, I forgot where they were. I forgot what <laughs> you, know, you know what I do with them." And I said, "By any chance, are those drums pink?" <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I believe they are." And I said, "By any chance, can I get your brother's number?" And um, <laughs> I called him and I said, I would like to get those drums back. Is that possible? And he said, uh, you were always really nice to me. Just give me enough money for like a secondhand drum set and come and get them. So oh, that's great. I gave him like 600 bucks 
and I rented a car and went there then and there before he changed his mind. <laughs> and um, and I got my drums back. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's that's a happy story. You don't hear that happen too often. Yeah. And he, he didn't do anything crazy to him, too, which is good. He didn't decide to put, um, you know, Yamaha or Pearl Tom holder on it or something crazy. Yeah. You know, I didn't update it in that way. You know, I, the drums sound really great. In fact, when I did the Santana reunion that you were uh, there, um, D.W. and John Good and, um, and um, Scott Garrison were good enough to make try to make those drums like three ply mm-hmm. and in pink champagne and they were great i now i still have those yeah. but um yeah that was that was nice because i wanted to try to get that sound that real you know thin you know not like eight ply or something like that yeah 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 they i mean the, those your drums sounded great that night and the drums you know you know, when you think about too how how you were recording back then too, the the difference, and and many people would probably say that that made all the difference was the fact that you were using um, tape, and you know maybe there were vintage microphones, but you had such a great organic drum sound on those records, you know, and yeah. at Woodstock, yeah. And I didn't do anything. I never taped them or anything. I always insisted that they be open. Um, like the jazz guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wanted that that open sound. I, I, I didn't want that 70s muffled dead sound. I did one thing like that for a education record, which the drums really sound, have that, that you know, that funk, no yeah. ring. Just, um, but otherwise, I like I liked the snare ringing. That's why I always like the... Um, the chrome Ludwig snare back it's right over there against the wall against that against that symbol of Elvin's. Oh right? yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Man, you know what I'm doing, John, for the first time? These drums here, they are silent. They're foam inside. And I am using I am triggering the Pearl Mimic Pro. Do you know that? I don't know that, no. So being in this isolation has really made me want to um, get a setup where I can record from home. But I'm not really an engineer, and I didn't want to have engineer over every time. So mm-hmm. this week, I I've, I've finally got this. I had a guy named Al Adnolfi make the drums from, from, um, from a uh, DW PDP kit. And um, and and make them trigger really well with the pearl. It's unbelievable how they sound. I mean, they're they're you know, there's 128 gigs of sound in there, and it's uh, it's amazing. So I'm hoping now I can you know send people files and stuff like that, and I can just do it in my own DAW and um, yeah, and go from there. You know, and you're have- using. Uh, you're using um, not um, electronic symbols as well. It looks like you're you're triggering. I'm, I'm, I'm experimenting with it for the first time. Um, you know, I'm gonna have to get used to it. I'll have to tweak them, but already it's so fun, um, and they sound amazing. I just sound so. You know, I've always been into electronics, 
but I never use the electronics for drum sounds. I use mm-hmm. them for, you know, left of center and, you know, not corny, but, you know, um, so I'm going to build a, a thing around this to see. Now I also have the sensory percussion sensors on there. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with them? Yes. Yep. Um, so since they're foam and they're silent, I could conceivably, I'm still tweaking it, but have all the sensory percussion stuff, choose to have it with the acoustic drums or just mute the acoustic drums and or mute a single acoustic drum and have one of them set up for melodic or whatever I want with the other thing. So I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited about working on new stuff, you know, but I've got, you know, I've got this Elvin Jones book that I'm working on too, that uh, Rob Wallace is going to put out. So my whole place is filled with uh, CDs and, um, and um, DAT tapes of interviews with Elvin. And uh, it's going to be really nice. It's just conversations. And you've been working on that a long time, right? I feel like we, we talked about that. Here's what happened with the pandemic. I, I, I brought to life stuff that's been sitting around for 20 years. And I said, let's finish these things. They're, they're of real value and they, they demand your attention and, and time. I also have a record that I just finished the artwork for called Drums of Compassion, which I started 20 years ago, which I'm playing like 16 drums standing up in a semicircle. The idea was more, more like a, a, a meditation record. The question I asked myself when I came home at 2 a.m., what kind of record would I like to listen to right now? Mm. As a drummer, what could I make? Because I like to listen to choral music. When I come home from listening to bands, I don't want to hear some slamming drumming. I want to hear chill, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that record's got Jack D. Jeanette and Olatunji and Ayrto and Pete Lockett and uh, Trey Gunn and Amon Tobin. So it's an important record to me. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get that out as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. Um, any idea when, when the book will be done and when that, that might be out? I do not. Oh, the, you don't. I, yeah. Okay. No, we've, we've gone through our third person, like, uh, you know, assisting me. I don't know if I'm a problem or what, but they, you know. <laughs> Well, I, I feel like I, I was on a, on a Tony Williams clinic tour in 1996. And I remember we were in, were you living in Portland, Oregon at that time? Or were you still in Seattle area, Tacoma? It was was Linwood, Washington. Linwood, Washington. Okay. You were there. We chatted, um, gosh, 25 years ago, if you can believe that. And Scott, Scott Garrison was there too, right? That's right. He was Tony's drum tech. Uh, right. At the time, yeah, right. and he had, it wasn't working for DW yet, but yeah, he was he was Tony's tech, and uh, and you and I had met, I think, about ten years before that when I was at DW, and yeah. so we yeah we reconnected, and you and I feel like you told me then that you were you were maybe in the early process of starting the book on Elvin, is that, <laughs> or is that, or maybe you were thinking of it, is that? I, I don't know. It's been going on so long. I'm, I'm, I kind of made the mistake uh, of telling Elvin that like, you should have do a book. And he said, well, wow, I don't you do it. 
and I foolishly said, okay, you know. So I traveled with him all over. I went to Greece with him and Keiko on their holiday. I went to Detroit. I met his, you know, childhood friends. Um, mm-hmm. I did. I interviewed a lot of people, and and then it just sat there um, because I I'd give it to um, uh, agents and say they say this isn't a book, you know. Mm-hmm. And I realized I'm not I'm not the biographer. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but when when the pandemic came and I and I committed to finishing these projects, I said and talking with Rob Wallace at uh, Hudson Music, said let's do it where it's just what it is. It's conversations with Elvin. Oh, yeah, it's me sitting down with Elvin. I mean that alone. He's it's so the 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 value of the material is it's. Because he's so majestic, you know what I mean, John. Yeah, you know? yeah. Aside from being down and dirty, I mean, this guy. When you read the words back, the level of intelligence is is really amazing. So, absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so deep, and and uh, I, I think I think you you've hit gold with that idea of of conversations with Elvin. That's that's what us drummers. That's what we all want to you know, read, see, and hear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've got some footage too. And I've got some live footage too, that I'm still trying to find, but I've got it. And I I paid for several nights of recording film uh, with Elvin here in Seattle, like, you know, four camera shoot type of thing. So, uh, you know, he's got great, great, great footage of him, like that underhand style on the hi-hat, you know? Yep. Bizarre to look at, but um, anyway, you know, oh, that that's um, I, I, I can't wait for that. And and you were, I, I, I want to say you were at his 75th birthday party at the Blue, I was, and uh, they made me get up and play as well. So, okay, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, I played Happy Birthday, and uh, that bass drum was 18 inch, but man, it was loud. And I hit it one time, and I thought, shit, that's loud, like a, I mean, you got. <laughs> Everybody in the audience, you know. Um, yeah. So, but you know, it was fine. And um, the next time we night. saw each other was at his at his funeral. You know. I know. I know. Yeah, I know, man. That was a. Yeah, it's. I. I. I this is. This is all about you today. But I, I. I feel really blessed to have known him and. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, I knew him later in his life, uh, but. But man, just so I thank God that I was able to be around when he was around, and yeah. uh, you know, and, and some of the most amazing times of my life were spent with him. You know, dinners and yeah. um, at his house, at his apartment in New York, and when he'd come to Boston. And uh, I'll just tell you a quick, uh, funny. You might have even been at this event. It was the um, I think they did this one time at Lincoln Center. The uh, jazz awards and i want to say the year was 1998 because it was the the summer before we honored him at berkeley him and max and uh, louis belston and roy haynes we had the american drummers achievement awards and and of course elvin was part of that so we went down to new york and um and had dinner with max roach which was amazing and then elvin presented an award and so he's and, and you of all people can appreciate this He's uh, 
he's he's up there giving a speech and as he's talking you know he's got that uh, kind of low voice and he's yeah. kind of you know understated and this bell star like a, a a fire alarm starts going off in in the venue it's just ding, 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 and everybody's you know we're sort of all just at the edge of our seat waiting for this thing to stop so we can hear elvin and finally he he goes up to the microphone and he said it just kept going on he said um dinner is served <laughs> <laughs> and it just it brought the house down it was you know classic elvin yeah he had an incredible sense of humor yeah <sighs> and he wouldn't yeah. say anything bad really like when i would Part of the book is I ask him about different drummers, you know, and so he gives his thoughts on drummers and stuff like that. And then some of them, um, without saying, I don't really care for the way he plays, you know, the worst he would say is, well, it's better than stealing hubcap. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know. He was such a positive, like, just. I yeah. mean, never without a smile on his face, at least that I ever saw, you know? Yeah, Just, yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, John, I mean, the the drummers that you've known, are, it's like a history of drumming, you know, uh, that you've become friends with. And it's it's just spectacular, um, you know, the people that have been in your life, you know? Well, In terms yeah, of drumming, I, uh, in, you know, is what I'm referring to. But yeah, it's amazing. Well, thanks for saying that, Michael. You included, of course, and and I, I I definitely I count my blessings. You know, I feel like I hit the lottery when it comes to that, and then I, you know, I'm still in contact with so many of these people like yourself that that I can yeah. we can do these types of things, and and um, and and you can share this because you've got a lot of people watching right now that are really enjoying this. In fact, I want to tell you that. Uh, you might know Phil Gould. He's the really fabulous drummer with the band Level Forty Two. Yeah, um, from, yeah. From and he's watching, and he said, I "Always love the rhythm section of Mike and Doug uh, Roch." Yeah, one of the greatest. Is that Automatic Man? No, that was Santana. That's, oh, that was uh, Santana. Okay. Yeah, Dougie Dougie Roch came in. We played a show. We played a show. Um, that's Phil, right? You're talking about yeah, yeah. Well, hello, Phil. For starters, I'm a big fan as well. And um, yeah, the um, we played a show in Accra, Ghana, in Africa, and um, we were on a plane. That's where I met Dougie Rout. Dougie was I playing see. with a group called the Voices of East Harlem, and we were on a plane. Get this with. Ike and Tina Turner, Wilson Pickett, the Staple Singers, Roberta Flack, um, that saxophone, Eddie Harris, and uh, Les McCann. Um, yeah, and they were all on a chartered plane, and that was a whole trip. Um, there's stories in the stories, but I met Dougie on the side of the stage. Um, we were watching some something, maybe even an African group, but we started talking funk, and um, he was all about funk, like Ohio players and this, that, and the other. And I told him that um, I live with David Garibaldi, and um, David used to live in my house in Mill Valley, and uh, 
and and he lit up because he <laughs> you know he, he super knew all the hippest funk and so i invited him out and he came out and he started playing in the, in a couple of groups out there and then um we got him in santana and it really changed things up he was really he was of the the level of like um uh you know like larry graham and um you know funk you know he he was doing the thumb thing like some people say he did it first so oh okay uh, yeah but yeah doug was amazing and always a pleasure to play with and uh, he always had his like velvet suits from uh um granny takes a trip in london and uh <laughs> he was the first person i knew who was a francophile drank perrier and um and got a, uh, what's that French car that goes up like this? Uh, I forget the name of the car, but anyway. Rose-tinted rose glasses, super chill, yeah. and changing the, changing the world on his face, you know. So <laughs> that's my Dougie Rouch story. Oh, that's cool. And Phil said, hello, so great to interact with you. Such an influence on me as you were on so many. Oh, that's great. And, Thank uh, you, Phil. That's very kind. Yeah. Oh. Any other well, questions in there? Let me see. Yeah, I know it's where we're. I know you've got oh, other. I've got to go too. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know what? It's if you get a second, Michael, and you want to jump on this, it's on Facebook. If you um, you could see these, and if there's anything you want to respond to or not. Um, okay. But I, I won't keep you. I do want to say hello to Christian Thornton, my good friend here in Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, that owns the best restaurant on the island called A Tree. Really? Well, that's thing something, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's it's I've a never fabulous been, I've place. Never been to the islands. It's beautiful. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful. I gotta check it out sometime. Well, if you make a trip to Boston, you're you're close. Yeah. You'd yeah, 